So the title of my talk is called The Insanity of Christian Hope. So I'm going to touch on all of that. Uh, but by way of introduction, in 1938, the state of Washington began construction on what would become the third widest bridge in the world. Spanning 2,800 feet, or over a half a mile, the suspension bridge was hailed as an engineering marvel when it opened in 1940. I first learned about this bridge when I was studying engineering in undergrad. And we discussed this famous wonder of the engineering world, but not for the reason you might think. This bridge was now, in modern engineering parlance, known as Gallopin Gertie. So if we play this, uh, go, change it, next slide please. What happens with Gallopin Gertie? No one was harmed in the making of that bridge. Actually, um, there was a moment when a dog was in a car that was abandoned, and a, a, a local kind of scientist sees the car barking in the, that truck in that photo and runs out, risking his life to this bridge that's just about to fall to get the dog. I don't know where the owner was, but hey. Uh, the remarkable thing about Gallup and Gertie is that the winds that day were just 40 miles an hour. The bridge twisted and turned like some diabolical carnival ride at the county fair. And it is a clearly evocative um, example, in this clearly evocative example from class. The part of the point the professor was trying to make is we don't know how, uh, we don't know the capacity, the load capacity for bridges, how much they can handle until they fall. Eventually, he said, everything breaks, everything fails, everything falls apart. You can imagine, uh, or at least understand for a second, why I am not an engineer anymore. So the, the next slide. Um, everything falls apart, whether it be the Hindenburg Zeppelin blowing up, the Tower of Pisa somehow becoming the leaning tower of Pisa, or the Sphinx that loses its nose, or uh, Twitter becoming a living hellhole of civil discourse. Everything breaks, and in Musk we trust. Everything will fall apart eventually. Systems tend toward greater disorder over time. The capacity to withstand and persevere diminishes over time. The more you use something, the more it is likely to break. In this life, things fall apart. Relationships fall apart. People die. 
churches split, people have nervous breakdowns, peace gives way to war, and your fancy new iPhone will succumb to what is called planned obsolescence. Planned obsolescence, by the way, is one of my favorite terms, because that's what it sort of feels like living is. Eventually, <laughs> we will become obsolete. I, I always feel like um, every, every year something else hurts. Every year I get older. And um, I'm currently 37 years old, and I've reached the stage where uh, tooth decay is a thing. And I have a, a, a root canal planned for an, a week, and that's going to be fun. But everything decays. Everything uh, falls apart. And with, when things go wrong, when time degrades what was once perfect, when the world conspires against you or you yourself blow up what you think was, uh, uh, might have otherwise been fine, when you find yourself in Folsom prison because you shot a man in Reno just to watch him die, the longing uh, so many people express is for what was the case to become again true. We want some degree of restoration, expressed in, uh, most wonderfully in the killer song uh, by Brandon Flowers, where he says, somewhere outside the lonely Esmeralda County line, the question of my heart came to my mind. If I go on with you by my side, can it be the way it was? We want restoration, return, for what's lost to be found. And when you're suffering or in a place of loss, the immediate and persisting desire is for whatever you've lost to be returned to you. If your home floods, you want a new home. If someone dies, you wish that they did not die, you want them back. If your health declines suddenly, you're searching for a miracle cure so that what is uh, you, so that things can go back to how they used to be. I was once a, a, a chaplain in a hospital for a summer. It was a kind of an internship deal. Um, and there was a man in his late 50s who had recently had open heart surgery. And as a chaplain, it was my job to go and visit everyone, right? Um, and to ask if they wanted prayer. And so I, I walk in and I ask him, what, what, what can I pray for you for? And he says, please pray that I can climb mountains again. I've got a trip planned to climb Mount Denali in a few months. Now, I'm 23, but I understand medicine at the, at the time. And Mount Den Denali felt like a Freudian slip for denial. <laughs> What we want is informed by what we've had. The hopes we have are determined by what has already been. This is why, in many ways, popular understandings of heaven are simply fantasy projections of what life is like today, but better. There, it is uh, like uh, the optimal morning. It is like the, the, the place uh, where everything is somehow like today, but better. Where your coffee never goes cold. So um, with that, I want to play the next clip. And 
as, by way of a precursor, the clip that I wanted to show you today was from the Seth Rogen movie, This Is The End. Um, so, but if you know anything about Seth Rogen, um, I, th there were more F-bombs in there than Sarah Condon says in a week. So I, I, I couldn't play that, that, that clip. So I have, to, I have to go a little bit more actual G-rated, but it gets the point across. So. Often our, our understandings of uh, what is to come, resurrection, heaven, whatever it is, is merely an extension of earthly life, what I would call Earth 2.0. Um, the next picture, please. Um, so, you know, this sort of looks like the celestial city, but clouds are a big deal, but uh, where there's always light. Um, or the next one. Uh, which I love this movie, by the way. But whatever it is that uh, his ancestors are, are living in, it just feels exactly like the, uh, life today, only they're skeletons. It's a movie Coco from Pixar. 
So often, because we uh, conceive of hope, because we conceive of what is to come in very earthly terms, based upon our present experience and uh, general understandings, we project into the future something which looks like Earth 2.0. And what I want to argue for, by by contrast, is that so far as the New Testament is concerned, such hope is far too meager, far too unimaginative, far too conditioned by what we have already come to believe to be possible. The kind of hope Christianity holds is, in a word, insanity. And by insane, I don't mean irrational so much as impossible. So, but rather than doing some kind of fancy word study of the Greek about what hope is, uh, which doesn't really tell us much of anything, I want to look at uh, 1 Corinthians 15 and Paul's discussion of the resurrection. Now, in the, uh, the text is up there. The, t- uh, the font is far too small, and for that I apologize. But, uh, so I'm going to read just a little bit of it for you. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body do, uh, do they come? Fool, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for you, uh, and, and as for what you sow, you do not sow the body that is to be, but a bare seed, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in a phys- what is it is sown a physical body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a physical body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the physical. Uh, The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second is from heaven. Okay, so what I find interesting in this passage is a a number of things. But the first is, um, it's impossible to read this as a kind of New Testament scholar, uh, independent of the modern anxiety within biblical scholarship and elsewhere that um, that whatever heaven be would be embodied. And what happens is we throw around all kinds of terms about various heresies like Gnosticism or Valentinianism or whatever. And we project that um, ancient kind of Christian heresy onto our modern times and to say that the, the resurrection must be a physical body. And I think that's true. But, what, but because of the anxiety, we do not interrogate what kind of body that is, what kind of physicality it is that will be raised. Now, if this sounds um, all kinds of weirdness, um, it, it is, number one. But number two, it matters deeply. Because uh, when you see it go wrong, it goes wrong terribly. So one popular New Testament author whose name uh, is, is not N.T. Wright <laughs> contrasts the physical body and the spiritual body as being different kinds of physicality. He says, he basically, it's, it's, the impression that you're left with is that uh, what, the difference between now and the future is simply that of a different operating system. The computer is the same, but the software is different. 
It's the soul versus the Holy Spirit. He says, this physical body will not be abandoned, but will be given new animation by the creator's own spirit. It's just Earth 2.0. It's a little better. It's a software upgrade. Now, the reason why I'm making this slight diversion is because the greater continuity you press between this world and the next, the more you make resurrection a work. The less it is grace, the more it is responsibility. And you see this in, Wright's, in, in N.T. Wright's writing. Sorry, it wasn't N.T. Wright, yes. Uh, his writing. He says, there is an underlying continuity between present bodily life and future bodily life. And that this gives meaning and direction to present Christian living. What is done in the Lord in the present, and the next line boggles my mind, will last into God's future. That is the severely practical message which emerges from this, the prince of early Christian resurrection discussions. The, on, the takeaway, which he calls the, the, the only, the severely practical message from the resurrection, is that what we do now will continue into the future. Now, what boggles the mind is if you, if you sort of transport this outside of church settings, um, and people read, will read this, the, if you are a lawyer now, you will somehow come under the impression that you will be a lawyer in the resurrection. And I, if there's one thing I hope is not in the resurrection, it's bishops. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm totally joking. <laughs> It's definitely lawyers. So what we have in Paul is not earth 2.0, but rather something that is far, far more. So, uh, so what Paul does is he compares uh, the present and the future as a, um, the difference between a seed and a plant. Um, and this is a very enduring image for me, because if you know what a seed is, you see the seed, you have no understanding of what the plant will become. If you ever do any gardening and you have the mixed uh, flower seeds, right, unless you're a really fancy herbologist, you, you know what, what might be coming, but you sow the seeds, but there's zero relationship between the seed and what is to come other than the continuity between that the seed becomes the plant. But whatever it is that we're doing here now, in the here and present, whatever it is that will come in the future has a relationship. There is a continuity, but it is far different, far better than we can imagine. So Paul uses this to then pivot to language of perishability and imperishability. Natural versus spiritual, the dust of the earth versus the stuff of heaven. Now Paul is, is using these kind of uh, opposites to talk about heaven as the negation of a negation. And the reason it, why he does so is because he's incapable of doing otherwise. Written across all of uh, Paul's writings and the New Testament, whenever it comes to talking about the future, the future is defined by the negation of a negative. 
a place where there is no decay, no death, no sin. It is the negation of a negation. What is mortal will be swallowed up by life, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the things have passed, for first things have passed away. And the one who is seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. That's from Revelation. The all things made new here are not new things of a previous kind, but new things that are hitherto unknown. But more than the negative, uh, the negation of a negative, what we have here is the absence of a positive. Um, as one New Testament uh, re- scholar put it, Paul, in contrast to Jewish apocalypticism, refrains from depicting the condition of the resurrection life. For a complex of future conditions could only be painted on an analogy with earthly life, as an ideal picture of earthly life, and that would directly contradict the character of the future as that which is not seen. If we were to try to guess or to speculate what it is to, what is to come into any sort of apparently or attempted coherent picture of uh, what heaven will be like, we will be left with nonsense. And by nonsense, I mean uh, uh, life as we know it now is so determined by decay, is so determined by death, so determined by irreparable causality that it's impossible to imagine life otherwise. Or if we try to, uh, it's nonsensical. So for example, every single cell in our body will die and be replaced within seven to 10 years. It is essential to how our bodies function. Death gives way to life in our bodies until it doesn't. (laughs) Or this um, scientists believe that erosion you know, when the rain falls down and, uh, and this, the rain falls, anyway, the rain comes down. I was about to sing and I, I'm not RJ, so I won't. But the rain, when rain erodes into the oceans, the minerals that are deposited into the ocean supply, tw- uh, run into some uh, fancy little microscopic thing, which then creates 20 to 40% of the earth's oxygen supply. Erosion the decay of the land upon, we, upon which we walk, we walk is the thing which creates 40% of what you breathe. Now, I find this remarkable, but it also means for me that uh, if we have no erosion, do we have no oxygen, right? If the future is simply Earth 2.0, then uh, we are left with, the, we are pushing up against, uh, then... Uh, then, we're, then it doesn't cohere at all. Then there is decay of some sort. No, the picture that we have is life without death, an eternal new creation without, de- uh, without decay. This is, in many ways, beyond what is imaginable, that which exceeds our expectations, that which outstrips the finite limitations of our temporal and physical selves. What this points to for me, the takeaway, is that of disproportionate hope. 
what Paul writes about is more than just restoration. It's more than a reversal. It's more than a vindication. It's more than a healing. Rather, it is disproportionate. Disproportionate. It is not a hope that is understood or determined within the broad realm of the possible. Instead, it is uh, in the realm of the impossible. Disproportionate hope is marked by daring, cheek, if not insanity. It is a desire for more than proportionality, for more than a return to how things once were and a venture into a land hitherto unknown. Disproportionate hope is the hope of the resurrection, and it takes its cues from Easter Sunday. But the remarkable thing about the New Testament and and Christianity writ large is that this future thing to which Paul points, Paul also somehow believes takes place in the here and now. And I know this because Paul said it, but I also know it because the the, um, amazing hair metal band Warrant said that heaven isn't too far away. We're closer to it every day. Now, if, that, if that's not good enough for you, I, I give you the, the German theologian, Jürgen Moltmann, who said already that, uh, that the present is already realizing what it is to be tomorrow. Future redemption connects deeply to what is, going, what is happening in the here and now and what God is up to. Or to put it in kind of fancy, fancy theological terms, justification by grace through faith and the final redemption of the world follow the same intrinsic pattern of divine action. The spirit who gave life to the dead body of Jesus is the same spirit who will give life to our perishable bodies in the end is the same spirit at work in the world today. As one New Testament scholar put it, Um, One of my favorites, John Barclay, he says, Paul repeatedly draws attention to the resurrection of Jesus because this newness of life is not some reformation of the self or some newly discovered technique of self-mastery. It is an eccentric phenomenon, drawing on the life from the dead that was inaugurated by Jesus' resurrection. Believers live to God as walking miracles, all the more evidently miraculous because this new creation life begins, in their case, in our case, not on the other side, but on this side of death. Though things decay and fall apart, though things do not last or are impermanent, In this life, because of the Spirit of God working, sometimes they don't. Sometimes things do not fall apart. And even more so, when they do fall apart, what what is uh, replaced, what comes to be, is far greater than what we thought was imaginable in the first place. It exceeds our expectations. God does not make the the possible actual. Instead, God is in the business of making the impossible, the insane, real. The resurrection of Jesus exceeds the natural order to create a new, altogether foreign order, 
It is altogether a supernatural miracle that only God can effect from the outside. It is more than what we see or would otherwise expect in the usual course of human events. It is not a desire for return to a previous harmony, but seeks a good that has never before been seen or known. Jesus was not simply resuscitated or returned to his previous health to die again of old age. He was resurrected to new life previously unseen in human history. Paul's discussion of the resurrection is at pains to capture its insane disproportionality. The resurrection for which we hope is not the revivification of our bodies, but the transfiguration of our bodies into glory, exchanging mortality for immortality, exchanging seeds for plants. Christian hope is inherently insane. Longing for an unseen world, the contours of which we can only faintly grasp. The God who will act and acts now is not bound by conventions of proportionality or the natural or what we think to be possible. God is in the business of the impossible. God is in the business of the insane. Thank you.